Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I do think it's fair game to call someone to account for their record. And that needs to happen definitely for John Cornyn going into 2020. Welcome to the National Podcast of Texas. This week's episode is sponsored by Visit Fort Worth. This week, Visit Fort Worth presents Fort Worth on Rainy. It's March 8th and 9th at South by Southwest, offering interactive culinary experiences with Chef Tim Love, whiskey tastings, film and travel meetups, the future of flight controls, and music from Grady Spencer and The Work, DJ Sober, Abraham Alexander, and much more. Details are at fortworth.com slash South by Southwest. I'm Andy Langer. Spoiler alert. Towards the very end of this week's show, after I danced around with Wendy Davis about whether she's going to challenge Republican incumbent John Cornyn in the 2020 U.S. Senate race, she told me that just last weekend she met with Joaquin Castro, encouraged him to run, offered her full support, and said she'll only consider a run at the seat if he chooses not to. But as you'll see, that's hardly all Davis is up to these days. Her advocacy organization, Deeds Not Words, encourages young women to participate in politics through organizing, policymaking, and voting. A recently launched spinoff, Movement Mujeres, aims to offer two-year fellowships to young women of color that are interested in running for office or pursuing careers in social justice. On this week's show... Davis offers an overview of the current status of women's reproductive rights issues in Texas, weighs the effects of the midterms on Texas Republicans, and details two private conversations, one with Beto O'Rourke, where she offered advice ahead of his Senate run, and another with Sandra Bullock, who's slated to play Davis in a film focused on her life and her infamous 2013 filibuster. This is Wendy Davis. Welcome. Thank you. Start with a personal story. Years ago, I think post-filibuster, pre-running, mm-hmm. I was at an event. You borrowed a Sharpie from me because people wanted autographs. And, and you want it back. Well, no. <laughs> Two hours later, everyone in the building is trying to find me saying, Wendy Davis is looking for you. And apparently, you went around the building that night asking where I was so to I could return give you my Sharpie. Bag. See, that's just the kind of person I am. <laughs> Who does that? I hope I will always do that. How many sneakers have you signed over the years? Many, many, many. And it's always an honor when someone asks me to do that. Um, of course, I still have mine. I saved them to pass down, hopefully, to a granddaughter one day. And now I have two granddaughters who are almost three and eight months old. You're going to have to have, figure out how to get their feet exactly the same as yours. <laughs> so down the road at the Capitol, they're coming for abortion again. Yeah. This one, if I'm not wrong, just appears unconstitutional on its 
face. 100%. So this one does or doesn't, despite that, get as far as previous efforts? Well, for example, um, there have been a number of bills that have been filed. Uh, one of the most pernicious is a six-week ban. Um, most people don't realize they are pregnant or have the confirmation of a pregnancy by then. Um, if they do, maybe it's a week prior. Um, so it would leave women without the capacity to exercise their legal right to abortion. And of course, that's the point. I'm encouraged, though, that that bill won't go very far um, because Speaker Bonin referred it to a committee that is chaired by Representative Symphonia Thompson, um, who is a friend to women's reproductive rights and who respects the existing constitutional right to access safe and legal abortion. Um, so I feel good right now about where we stand. Um, you never know, though, because I know as a legislator that sometimes if I couldn't get a bill through committee, the way I could circumvent that would be to add it as an amendment to something else. So we're going to have to stay really vigilant to see how these anti-abortion bills move through the legislature, even if they don't see the light of day coming out of committee. Um, what are some other ways that we might see them come to life, and how can we be best prepared to make sure that we defeat them? If we look at now versus your filibuster and the time around that, how much better organized and prepared is your movement? I feel like it is much better organized. I feel like the preparation from organizations on the ground who are working to make sure that women can continue to exercise their access to safe and legal abortion has been there for a long time. Um, their strategies have been sound. Their preparation um, of legislators and of people in the community to come and be a part of that conversation has been sound. But there's a growing awareness, obviously, from the date of the filibuster here in Texas that spread not just across our state, but across the country as well, where we began to see copycat attempts at the law that ultimately did pass in Texas. Thankfully, the Supreme Court um, in 2016 struck that law down and in doing so laid a better template for those of us who believe women should continue to hold that right um, against what a lot of states are doing in the quote-unquote interest of women's health, um, which are a sham, of course, for their attempts really to foreclose access to that constitutional right. Is the challenge simply activating your core because it's not a issue that people tend to change their minds about. They're dug in. True. So it's more about getting your people active than it is going and changing the way people think, right? Yeah, so much of it is about informing. I kind of divide people into three camps when it comes to abortion. We think about it as those who are pro-women's um, autonomy to their own bodily decisions and those who are anti-abortion. 
But there's really three camps. One of those are the women I just described, uh, the people I just described, who believe that women ought to have our own autonomy and liberty to decide these very um, private medical decisions for ourselves. There is another group, I'll put them in the middle. Um, This is a group who very sincerely believes that life begins at conception and that abortion is a violation of what they morally believe is right. There's a third group. The third group is the group we deal with most often. That third group is a politician or a political group trying to gain power who uses abortion as a wedge issue specifically to gain or to hold power. Um, I can have really constructive conversations with the middle group because we're both coming from a place of sincerely held beliefs and I can respect that belief and you know operate from a way of being able to have the kind of conversations that flow where each side respects the other. I do not have respect for the third group that I described. And that's the group that we really have to stay active against. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie that Netflix has aired recently called Reversing Row, but they do such a good job of helping people to understand what the political context of this abortion fight has been and how and why it became the issue that it became as a way of the continued longevity and power of the Republican Party. What about the power of men? Because I've seen you say that it's not coincidental that they go after abortion at the same time that women are rising up and taking on power in other places, that this is a convenient way to sort of remind women, hey, we've still got this to wave over your head and dominate you with. Yeah, and I guess you could you could call that kind of a fourth group, although group three and group four probably have a lot of overlap. Um, but that fourth group is really a misogynistic one um, who is seeking to constrain women's reproductive freedoms because obviously by constraining our reproductive freedoms, you constrain our opportunities. We as women have long understood that our reproductive autonomy is absolutely intricately um, intertwined with our ability to set our own destinies for ourselves, including our economic destinies. And it's, um, of course, not at all accidental that after women gained the right to legal contraception in 1972 with the Supreme Court decision of Eisenstadt v. Baird, and the right to safe legal abortion in 1973 with the Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade, our participation in the full-time workforce skyrocketed. We went from being about 28% of the full-time workforce to 40% of the full-time workforce. And that didn't just benefit us. It benefited the bottom line of our economy. Um, I, I tell audiences that I talk to about this issue a lot, 
if you just took a snapshot year, the year 2012, in that snapshot year, that added percentage of women's participation in the workforce, just the added percentage, was sufficient to cover the costs of Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security combined. So the bottom line economic benefit and need that this economy has, that our country has, for women's participation in the workforce is a very real thing. And it may be the case that uh, there are some men out there who are fearful of women's uh, continued rise to power. However, um, it's a very short-sighted view because as Hillary uh, often said in her campaign, when women do better, we all do better. And an integral part of us as women doing better is making sure that we can continue to control our own personal decision-making about our bodies. Cecile Richards on this podcast said she fears that the next generation, for the first time in her life, she fears the next generation might have fewer rights than she has. Yes. On the other hand, generationally, isn't this a generational long game? Yeah. I mean, you've got to fight on the front now but it would presumably appear demographically that generations ahead, and we're already seeing this with the midterms, would have less issues with these issues. Correct. That's definitely true. I mean, there was an, an excellent article, I think it was in the New York Times not too long ago, that talked about the rising electorate and how that group of people, whether they identify as Republican or Democrat, for many of them, these issues are not, um, they're, they're settled in their minds. They're not issues that they believe we need to be fighting for. LGBTQ equality, for example, the environment, um, sensible gun regulations, these things are settled in their minds. And so they're bringing those progressive perspectives forward with them, even when they have ours uh, next to their name. Now, the same isn't necessarily true of abortion. It continues to be a wedge issue for a lot of people in the religious right uh, piece or portion of the Republican Party. Um, but the good news is that young women today um, are becoming increasingly aware of the threat to them and the threat to what they thought was a long settled right. And they're becoming much more active in making sure that they're paying attention to and voting with that issue at the forefront of their mind. Words, not deeds. Deeds, not words. See, I did that. Do people do that? People they do. do that. Okay. They do, yeah. Basically, four big legislative agendas. And that's ending campus sexual assault, menstrual equity, rape kit backlog, and then women's reproductive rights. On all of those issues, how much, by the nature of this being Texas, do you just have to play defense? Unbelievably, we're playing offense on a lot of those. Um, and, and it's encouraging and exciting to see. Um, we've seen a lot of bipartisan support around the issue of addressing sexual assault. 
Um, Senator Watson right now has an excellent bill that creates a state nine because we've seen the unwinding of protections at the federal level. And I think we're going to see success on that. Um, the young Deeds Not Words advocates that we've trained have been in the Capitol testifying in support of that and many other sexual assault protections. They've also been in the Capitol. Um, and in fact, we have a hearing coming up on tomorrow morning on Representative Neave's omnibus bill to deal with the continued problem of a rape kit backlog in our state. We're hearing a lot of important talk around increasing state funding support for the testing of that backlog, state funding support for the social services that support survivors of sexual assault, and state support for the sexual assault nurse examiners who, of course, have the special training to collect these evidence kits. Um, so in that world, we're seeing some great bipartisanship. There are other issues that our young women work on, though. Essentially, anything you can think of under the gender equity umbrella is part of what they care about. Um, so they're working on maternal mortality. They have been guided by the AFIA Center in Dallas, an excellent women of color-led organization that is specifically focused on legislative work to help correct the very serious problem we have with that here in Texas. I think we're going to see some bipartisan support on that. Representative Theory is from Houston is carrying some really wonderful bills in that regard. Representative Thompson is once again carrying a bill that she and I worked on together when I was still in the Senate on pay equity to finally create the state version of the Lilly Ledbetter law. She and I were successful in passing that bill in 2013. And Governor Perry vetoed it after pressure from uh, a couple of uh, private corporate interests, Macy's and Kroger, to be specific. Um, but she's taking another shot at that this time. I think, you know, Republicans are starting to understand that women are voting in much greater percentages than we had been before. The 2018 midterms was certainly a wake-up call for them. Speaker Bonin, speaking to a group not very long ago, was talking about the fact that Republicans need to fix the problem that they have with women. Um, so I'm hoping if everyone is coming uh, to work every day in the legislature right now, understanding that that's something they need to do, we're going to see more bipartisanship. I hope they'll appreciate the fact that fixing their problem with women, though, includes staying out of our reproductive decision making. Um, that's an issue that we continue to play defense on rather than the offense that we'd love to be working to achieve. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. And um, I'm hopeful that we're going to beat back any further attempts to unwind that right. Because the two ways of looking at this is either they learned from 2018, they're going to be more flexible. Right. Or, or it's last stand. Yeah. And you try to do what you can do. Yeah. But you're hoping for the, the former. I'm hoping for the former. And I think they think it's the former. I don't think they believe that it's their last stand right now. Um, they've gotten a wake-up call. There's no question about that. 
And depending on um, how activated people are in 2020, and I think they will be more so than they were in 2018 with President Trump on the ballot, um, they'll probably see some further corrections. Um, that's probably when the real wake-up call is going to come for them. We're only nine seats away right now from shifting the balance from Democratic minority to Democratic majority in the Texas House. Um, and, of course, only one seat away from, again, regaining a minority block in the Texas Senate. So we're talking about having some real power there again in just a couple of years. Watching Beto, what did you learn? What did you take away from that? What was, as somebody who's run for office? Yeah, it was a delight to watch him. Um, when Beto f was first thinking about running, he and I sat down on several different occasions to talk about his plans to do that, to talk about what I'd learned, uh, my woulda, coulda, shouldas, my advice to him. And one of the woulda, coulda, shouldas I have was that I allowed myself, and the blame is purely at my feet, no one else's, I allowed myself to be message managed, to be guided by national pollsters and uh, message managers who I thought knew so much more than I did about running at that level. I had always before really trusted my gut and my own voice and my own ideas about what I thought I wanted to express to voters. So my advice to Beto was be your authentic self. Don't stack your campaign with pollsters and message managers. Just you know in your heart what your message needs to be and what you believe the people in Texas uh, need to hear. And as long as you're authentic, they will see that. And even if people don't agree with you all the time, um, they will appreciate that you are a person they feel they can trust because you are true to your values. And I, of course, cannot take credit for how beautifully he did that, but I'd like to think that he really did take that advice to heart because if there's anything that we can say about his campaign, it was that he was true to his voice, his values. Um, he brought forward a positive message that I think was a great counterbalance to what people feel is broken right now, not just in Texas, but in this country. And I think we can expect to see him do the same if he enters the presidential stage, and I believe he will. At the same time, <clears throat> do you think he made a mistake not going negative for more than a couple of days when, when the opponent yeah. is Ted Cruz? Yeah, I mean, you know, he had the benefit of something that I did not have, and whomever runs against John Cornyn will not have. Ted Cruz brought with him his own negative numbers, right? Um, he's widely disliked, even within his own party. And that was something that Beto did not have to spend time, energy, and money to create. Right. Uh, that perception was there. I suppose he could have done some more of helping people kind of crystallize around why Ted Cruz and his votes and his values were bad for them and their families. But I do think inherently people understood that. Um, and so he, he was able to operate in a very positive way and not have to worry about that. When I ran against Greg Abbott, we had to spend an inordinate amount of money and energy trying to help 
voters in Texas understand who he was, what his values were, and why he would not be a good leader for this state. And it was tough to do because he had never taken a vote before. He'd Mm -hmm. never been a legislator. Um, And helping them to understand some of the things he had done as attorney general, as indicative of what those values looked like, was, was hard. Um, He still to this day enjoys the reputation where a lot of people feel, you know, he's a pretty decent guy. As opposed to Dan Patrick, who people have very different feelings about. They've conducted themselves differently, though, of course, their votes, their um, policies that they support are identical. Um, But it's the way you conduct yourself that that leaves that um, idea in the minds of voters. John Cornyn, I think, is the same. Um, He's been more mild in the way he conducts himself personally, the way he presents, um, the way he talks about things. However, the things that he's done as a U.S. senator have been every bit as dangerous, if not more, as things that Ted Cruz has done. Whomever runs against him will have to include as part of their message to voters why he's an unacceptable choice for them in 2020. You have the stomach for that, right? I've had to grow the stomach for that. Yeah, it's not, you know, it's not a comfortable thing to do. Um, And I've tried very hard always if I'm asking voters to consider my opponent in a way that's unflattering to do it very specifically addressing their record, not anything in their personal lives. I I just think those below the belt hits are, they're certainly not something I ever want to be associated with. Um, But I do think it's fair game to call someone to account for their record. And that needs to happen definitely for John Cornyn going into 2020. That's going to be a complicated field, whether you're in it or not. Yes. And that's because in many ways of the success of Beto. Yes. Whether he was successful in landing the office or not. Yes. People see an opening. They do. People do see an opening in it, you know, and so much of it is due to Beto himself and the work that he and his extraordinary team did. But credit is also due to grassroots organizers who never even saw themselves as an organizer before, um, people who got self-motivated after 2016 and who began organizing themselves in Facebook groups and community groups, a lot of suburban women who had never participated politically before and who built groups of 500-plus people Um, who really began to exercise their power in that 2018 midterm. And also uh, the fact that we had unbelievably competent Democratic congressional candidates, state House candidates, and state Senate candidates, each of whom were raising money, were conducting professional field organizations and operations in their districts, 
and who were a huge part of helping to churn the turnout that benefited Beto up the ticket. There was work that benefited them down ballot because of what he did, but make no mistake about it, those grassroots groups and those candidates that were down ballot of him, the work they did to propel success up the ballot is also very, very important. And I think we're going to see that in 2020 as well, that same kind of energy, both directions. It just popped into my head that you, by the nature of having held office, having run for office, you know how the sausage is made. Can yeah. you? And you said you think Beto will end up running. And I'm looking at you wondering whether you're going to run. Can you look at people, particularly with all these on-the-fence Democratic presidential nominees, do you look at it differently? Can you tell who's going to run and who's not? based on what they're doing, because you know that game? I might have a slightly more educated guess about it. Um, I I think the calculus that Beto is going through right now is, which race does he have the fire in his belly for? Um, I think his passion in that regard is really what's going to drive his best effort. And I think that's been part of his decision making about where that effort would best be spent. Um, he's clearly riding a tremendous wave right now. And when you're at the crest of a wave like that, I, you know, I'm sure he's going through the calculus of feeling like he needs to see where that will take him. Um, I certainly, I know that that was a part of my decision making in 2014 when I ran for governor, coming out of the filibuster and the national recognition and name identification and fundraising capacity that that provided for me. It turns out for me that that personal wave was not in alignment with what was happening with the electorate. Um, it was a terrible year for Democrats all over the country. So, you know, he, he's, I think, at this point, able to grab some lightning in both contexts, not only what's happening with him personally, but also the climate. And, you know, that's when magic happens. How much different are you? Because you called yourself not a natural born leader on yeah. many occasions. Have you become more of a leader because the last four or five years have demanded that? I think my passion has driven that. Um, and I tell young women this all the time. We work with 19 chapters across the state of Texas at Deeds Not Words in high schools and colleges all over the state. And we really seek out those young women who aren't already going to be the class president and aren't already maybe going to run for office one day, but the ones who have deep passion about issues, who very much want to be a part of making change. Um, and who need the skills to learn how to do that and to learn how to become leaders. We may not be natural-born leaders. Um, there are some people that just have a talent for that, um, who have the kind of personality that engenders um, the kind of support that we saw Beto receive. Some of us have to learn that, and we learn it through our life experiences. They shape the things that we care about. They shape and deposit that fire in our belly. And then leading on those issues becomes just a logical um, consequence, you know, because you're propelled to do it, even in the face of fear. 
Um, and even in the face, honestly, of knowing that personally it's going to be really hard and you're going to take a lot of grief um, and suffer a lot of pain, there are just some things that are worth doing that for. Um, and that's what I'm seeing, and I know we're all seeing, happen across the country right now, where those folks who never believed they would be politically involved stepped up and ran for office in 2018. Many of them won, and they're bringing these beautifully fresh perspectives and passions to their work that hadn't been represented in the way that we're seeing them now. But particularly with the issues that are important to you, how do you stop that from coming from a place of anger where you just feel like you're hitting your head against the wall with people who should understand this stuff yeah and how do you turn that into productiveness and even hope if anger is the very natural reaction i would think to most of these issues anger is a motivator but i think what you you have to have in addition to that is the appropriately idealistic belief that you can actually accomplish a change on that something, whatever it is. There are a multitude of issues that I care about beyond women's equity, gender equity. Um, and each of those fuels a passion for me, public education um, being chief among them. Those things give you the power to advance your voice and put yourself out there because you have a belief, and I do, um, whether experience ought to have taught me otherwise or not, I have a very idealistic belief continuing to this day that we are capable of making the kind of change that I believe and so many other people believe needs to happen. And I recognize that we can't just wait for someone else to do it. We have to play our part in doing it. And I'm trying to do that even now, even though I'm not in office anymore working with all of these young women and trying to help grow that next generation of people who are going to pick up the reins and finish this for us um, and get us across the finish line of so many of the things that we've been working a long time to achieve. Was there a freedom in not winning that you came to discover being valuable? I just hate losing, so I can't say yes to that. Um, it's There's never, I, I, I don't see an upside in not having won that. I do see an upside in having run even though I lost. Um, and the upside is obviously that we did a lot of work in building the infrastructure in this state an infrastructure that had been really untended for a long time in terms of our voter file, in terms of um, identifying potential Democratic voters or Democratic lean voters. And I was very proud at the end of our campaign that we gave all of that to the state party so that every other candidate could benefit from it. I'm the only person who's ever done that who ran for statewide office in this state. Um, but for me, this has always been about the ultimate goal of succeeding as Democrats and realizing the values that we share and that it's so much bigger than and more important than anything I will do in my own personal political career. I also run across all the time young people who worked in my campaign 
who tell me that they've changed their career paths as a consequence. I see them working in campaigns around the country now when I've gone and done surrogate work for other candidates. And it's very gratifying to know that we left an imprint on the work ahead and that that was a positive imprint that will continue to be built on just as everything that Beto just did running statewide in our state will also create a positive um, impact to build on going forward. I mean, I'm a petty person. And if you won statewide, I imagine the desire to just say I told you so. And it's, <laughs> it's a middle finger. I mean, it would be for you, particularly after the last attempt. Yeah. Is that a motivating factor? You know, it's a it's definitely a motivating factor to demonstrate that you can do better. Um, it's a motivating factor to demonstrate that climate has uh, as much to do with the outcome of these races as individual candidates and their campaigns. Um, but most importantly for me, the motivating factor, if I ran again, would be about the goal of realizing our vision the goal of making sure that the progressive values that matter so very much to me and I believe to a majority of Texans have a voice fighting for them. But it's not worth doing if you don't think you can win. True. I mean, you can't bring the kind of energy to a fight um, if you don't believe it's something that you can be successful at. And there's a lot of energy needed to run statewide in a state as big as Texas. Is not the current social media and traditional media landscape dramatically different than 2014, too? I mean, and you were on the receiving end of sort of the early version of trolling. Oh, yes. Both on an organized opposition campaign level Mm -hmm. and on a social media level, et cetera. That stuff's only worse now. Yes, but the growth of social media and the use of social media and political campaigns is also only better now. Okay. Um, when I ran in 2014, I was kind of at the cusp of how people were beginning to use social media channels as a way to speak to much greater numbers of voters and to have an opportunity to raise those small dollar donations that are such an important part of the kind of campaigns um, that Democrats typically run. Of course, Bernie Sanders kind of was the next level of that. We saw in Beto's campaign how very much he benefited from the ability to communicate with voters and raise money through those online resources. The, The science and technology and tools that center in that space are dramatically better today than they were when I ran in 2014. So I guess you could say it's a blessing and a curse. Um, At the end of the day, I think it's much more blessing than curse because it does provide candidates with the opportunity to uh, communicate with voters and not have to rely on third parties allowing them to do that, whether it's the traditional media or whether it's um, the use of paid media in order to be able to do that. If you've got Beto paving the way on one side, where does Me Too come into? Is it too early to tell where Me Too impacts? 
I suppose. Um, I definitely see that work being done at the policy level. And okay. as I said, we're doing a lot of that with our young advocates at Deeds Not Words. I don't know yet how that has shaped uh, the electorate and how that has shaped the motivation of people to vote. Um, I don't know in Beto's campaign what they would have to say about that. They've probably got some very well-informed opinions about it. Um, But I can't help but think that any time we are giving young women, particularly now younger than the millennial voter, the Generation Z voter that we work with, I can't help but think that their awareness on that issue and their understanding that policymakers have a responsibility to them on that issue, I can't help but think that that won't motivate them as voters. And your other program is designed to bring up through the ranks a culturally diverse collection of new leaders. That's right. Movement Mojetas is a program that Deeds Not Words and Jolt Initiative have collaborated to create. Uh, We were fortunate to receive a grant from the Novo Foundation in New York. Uh, The Novo Foundation is run from some of Warren Buffett's children. And they are very focused on women's leadership development. Uh, We applied for a grant to do deep dive leadership training of women of color in our state um, and presented to them information that helped them see that right now there's a disproportionately negative impact to young women of color in our state. young women who are becoming a rising percentage of our population and who are seeing a dramatically decreased representation of their voices. And so we are committed to doing everything we can to help provide the skills and training to young women who can position themselves in elected office, who can position themselves as leaders of social justice movements and organizers, and who can position themselves in the philanthropic community to make sure that they're helping to direct resources in ways that help to realize some of those values and visions as well. Less important, but not not important. Sandra Bullock was supposed to play you in a movie. <laughs> is that happening? It is, actually. Um, as things go in Hollywood, on its own timetable. But okay. I, I actually just met with her um, here at Walton's Fancy and Staple, which, of course, is her right. restaurant in Austin. A few weeks ago, we had our first lengthy sit-down conversation, um, really getting to know each other. My motivation and um, purpose uh, behind the filibuster that day And it looks like the filming will probably begin in the fall with a release in 2020. How crazy is that for you? It's surreal. Sandra Bullock's going to play you. (laughs) It's surreal. I mean, she's so amazing. Um, What I really have tried to convey to her, to the executive producer, Todd Black, um, to the screenwriter, Mario Correa, who is fabulous, I want our story to be one that is a reflection of the power of individuals, not anything that I specifically did, because that's really the story of the filibuster in Texas and why it became known as the people's filibuster. It demonstrated what we are capable of if we decide to show up, 
if we decide to own our own individual power and have the ability to rely on others to own theirs so that we become a community of fighters and change makers. Um, And that's the message that I hope it leaves with people, that it inspires them to believe that sometimes uh, the thing that matters most is just showing up. There's going to be people who have never heard of the filibuster. Yes. That 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 whole thing, either they weren't old enough or they were X number of states away and not looking at the news that week. Is that crazy to you? Like This is going to be went by people's so fast. first entry point <laughs> is going to be a movie yeah. that therefore sets the historical record for this yeah. event yeah. and for your life. Um, it's funny because... Right after my gubernatorial campaign, when I would go and speak to college campuses around the country, those young women were of a generation that they knew the filibuster, right? And they knew who I was. And um, now, those the young women who are in college, they were in middle school back then, right? Um, and they don't know about it. So I guess it does definitely give us an opportunity to... Um, help other people understand what happened here in Texas that day and and really what's happened around reproductive rights in general. Um, And I hope it inspires them to believe that they really can make a difference. Was it strange for you to be sitting across from her and knowing that she's looking at you for ticks, little little (laughs) things you might do? Because... That's how one picks up the character. Yeah. Yeah. I Were you extra self-conscious? No, I tried not to think about it. <laughs> okay. um, she was very natural and easy to talk to, and she is as sweet as you would imagine that she is. She's America's sweetheart for a reason. <laughs> and I guess finally, should you run, you'd wind up getting a nickname from the president because you're a woman running in Texas. You want to get ahead of that? Pick, so- pick something. Gosh, I don't know. Um, we'll 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 leave that to his own devices. But you know, my decision to do that for 2020, for example, it's still a long way from happening. Um, I had a a really wonderful sit down conversation with Congressman Joaquin Castro over the weekend, just letting him know that I very much want to be behind him in a campaign against John Cornyn and that I will do everything I can to share resources, understanding, information, uh, raise money for him, um, help campaign for him if he decides to do that. And I hope that he will. I don't know yet uh, what his decision will be. And he's being very thoughtful, of course, about coming to that decision. So the answer Hopefully is it's we'll his first, that's you're saying? In my mind. In your um, mind, yeah. Yes, that's that's certainly what I conveyed to him. And it's very sincere. Um, I think he would be a fantastic candidate. I think he has been a fabulous leader in Congress. Um, the fact that he led the way on the House resolution to declare the unconstitutionality of President Trump's emergency declaration is just an example of the kind of fighter that he is. He's articulate, he's smart, he cares about all the right things, 
He's got a stellar voting record on the values that we share as progressives, and I think he'd be a great candidate. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. For more on Wendy Davis's Deeds Not Words, go to deedsnotwords.com. Our thanks again to Visit Fort Worth. You can find more information on their South by Southwest activities at fortworth.com slash South by Southwest. Meanwhile, you'll also find our March issue at texasmonthly.com, which charts Bucky's path to world domination. We'd love it if you'd consider subscribing to our show, leaving a comment, or rating it wherever you found us, maybe even telling a friend. I'm Andy Lang, working with producer Brian Standifer. Thanks for being here. Thanks in advance for coming back next week.